And our scripture reading is in Genesis 47, 18 through 21. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord. Is that right? The fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seeds so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Perfect. All right. Good morning. Everybody all right? Good morning, Who was, whoever was very specific. Good morning to you, too. Um, yeah, it sounds like a weird passage, right? But that's what we're doing today, and there's a reason for that. Uh, most people start their sort of new Bible reading plan that they bailed on last year in February. They start it over in January every year, right? And they start reading, and they get a little... Sometimes they get discouraged because they get to books like Numbers and Leviticus, and it's just, it's just hard going, right? And other times, people start reading, and they get discouraged because they don't like what they're reading. Uh, and so I was reading a few weeks ago, because I started my plan over as well. I've, I've explained this before. If you read about three pages a day of the Bible, really no matter what you're using, about three pages or so, it's probably going to get you there to the end, by the end of the year, unless you're doing like one with like the Apocrypha and stuff like that, then you're going to have to probably do four pages a day. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, I was about at this passage, and I figured other people were at this passage too. Um, and I was thinking about a lot of the things that I was reading, and I was wondering who else was thinking about the things that they were reading and having a hard time with. I'm going to raise this up a little bit. Um, and so here's, here's the thing. Uh, I touched on some ideas last week where I talked about how Jesus is so different from um, what we expected. You read through the Bible, you get, to, you get through the whole thing, and you get, you get to the part where Jesus enters in. And you realize that like, Jesus is very, very different. Why does Jesus seem so different than the, uh, the God of the Old Testament? Um, and a lot of Christians assume that, like I said last week, they assume the depictions of God all through the Bible are equal. Um, and that Jesus is just another depiction of God alongside all the other depictions of God. Um, but then you read passages like this. You read passages in the Old Testament where God seems particularly uh, vindictive and, and violent and, and uh, bitter and holding grudges. And you have a hard time with that. And so this morning I kind of wanted to like, because I talked last week about reading the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And you can see how the revelation of who God is through Jesus sort of fills us in on all the things that they didn't have. And we come to realize that like, what Jesus gave us, what he revealed to us about God was so necessary, lest we fashion God in our own image and based on the things that we see. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of do an exercise this morning where I'm gonna help you as in your reading. So I, I wanna help you look through this particular passage through the lens of Jesus like I talked about last week. 
Um, I'm thinking about like maybe the last sermon of every month. I'm going to go off topic and do something different. I'm going to go out of the passage because there's so many things I want to talk about. And so this is a test of that. We'll see how it goes. Um, but as you move through the Old Testament, it's oftentimes difficult to understand how the picture of God that you've been given in the Old Testament and the New Testament are so jarringly di- uh, different. Um, the way God's people lived before Jesus and the way God's people lived after Jesus is also jarringly different. Um, the, the early church after Jesus, the early church, they were completely 100% nonviolent and pacifistic up until about the time of Constantine, about the early 300s. Uh, they, they didn't fight for land. They didn't, care. they didn't own any land and they didn't try to own land. They, didn't, um, they provided for the sick and the poor. They, they didn't try to conquer their enemies. They didn't try to kill their enemies. They didn't fashion allegiance to any earthly nations. They didn't engage in earthly politics other than to sort of proclaim that Jesus is Lord and everything that they did politically aligned with the fact that that they have allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so the way they're living and the way the people in the Old Testament, the people of God, it's the same people of God, but, but they're living differently. Um, they even write their Nicene Creed. If you read the Nicene Creed, it's something that uh, we have on our website as our sort of statement of faith, the Nicene Creed. It's the, it's the most ancient, agreed upon, ecumenical creed of Christianity. Like, this is what Christians believe. But the Nicene Creed, when you look at it, is really just a list of things that we learned about God from Jesus. Things that we didn't know before, but now we do. So next time you read the Nicene Creed, think of it like that. The Lord, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Like, look at uh, the, the Shema, the way they talked back then, and then look at the Nicene Creed. And you can see sort of like there's a, a shift change in, in your mindset. Um, the Nicene Creed is a list of all the things that Jesus revealed to us about God. That's why it had to be written down. Um, and so I want to go through this passage, and I want to look at the the leaders of Israel before, and then I want to look at sort of like Jesus. And I want to see how they're different, and I want to see why this is an important exercise to do. So let's talk about Joseph. Um, this may be about where you're at in your reading, maybe a couple of weeks ago or whatever, but I'm going to help you look at it sort of again. In Genesis, so here's, here's some cliff notes of the story. If you, if you haven't read the story of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, so in Genesis chapter 37, there's this boy. He's 17 years old. His name is Joseph. He has one younger brother, uh, and he has nine older brothers, and um, 10 older brothers. And he's having these dreams and these visions about his brothers worshiping, like bowing down before him. And he makes the mistake of telling them these dreams. Uh, and they get really mad about it, and they throw him in a hole. And then they're like, no, nah, and they pull him out of the hole. And then they sell him into slavery. Uh, and then they cover the the coat that his father gave him because he loved him so much, he covered it in blood, took it back to the father and said, he died, he got attacked by a wild animal, we found this coat. But really, he's on his way to Egypt. Um, and the whole time he's in Egypt, he actually flourishes. Like, he's in prison and stuff. First, he's serving, like, as a servant in somebody's house, and he's falsely accused of sexual assault, and he escapes and runs away. Um, but then he gets caught and thrown in prison. And while he's in prison, he's helping people. He's able to interpret dreams for people. He has this divine wisdom and you can tell that God is taking him somewhere and raising him up to some position for some reason, and we don't know what. But eventually it becomes um, obvious that, that why God raises him up. Because what happens is he raises up to be the um, sort of the, the head of Egypt, first in line underneath Pharaoh, um, because he's able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, and he's able to tell Pharaoh um, the meaning of this dream that has been sort of bothering him night after night after night, 
And what it means, like, so first off, Pharaoh, I've talked about this before, Pharaoh, Ra is the sun god. Pharaoh is the incarnation of God in the world, in, as far as the Egyptians are concerned. When you look at Pharaoh, you know what God is like. He's there to represent God in the world. It's called being an imago Dei. We have cre- been created to be imago Deis as well, but that's not for today's subject. It's a little bit of today's subject. Um, and so Joseph now has been placed on the throne. He says, whatever decree you make out there in Egypt is going to be as if I made this decree. So Joseph ascends to the throne of Pharaoh, and he now holds the power. And the question is, is he going to be the image of Ra, or is he going to be the image of Yahweh? Which king is he going to be like? Because when you ascend to power, suddenly there's this spiritual darkness in high places, as the Bible calls it, that you have access to all kinds of things you didn't have access to before that weigh heavily upon you, and there's all kinds of things that can sway you and cause you to do evil, evil things. Because power corrupts. It's what it does. We were never meant to wield power. We were designed to reflect the power of God, not to wield it, right? So Joseph is in this position, and he has to make some choices. And so first off, let's go to um, uh, our first passage here about what, what Joseph tells Pharaoh about his dream. He says, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be, will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. So we find out now why God has raised Joseph up to sit on the throne of Pharaoh. To bring salvation to the people of Egypt who are going to starve and die. And he, he gives this foreknowledge, this wisdom of what is going to happen. And so he says, for seven years, we're going to have really good crops. And so what we're going to do is we're going to build silos. Uh, they didn't go up in those days. They went down. Silos went down into the ground. So we're going to dig these silos and we are going to um, fill them with grain so that, so that the people of Egypt, when the seven years of famine come, can survive. They can come and we can help them survive. And then the nation of Egypt will not be wiped out. So the reason that God has raised them up is to feed the poor, to take care of the poor. He wants to provide for all those in need. And you know what? That checks out. That is exactly in line with what we see as Jesus. Because as you're seeing these things, you think about Jesus. Is this really what God wants him to do? And then you look at Jesus and you say, well, this is what Jesus did. We see Jesus gathering people and feeding them. We see him healing the sick. And yes, he even starts off his ministry with, "Um, God has sent me to bring good news to the poor, freedom to the enslaved, stuff like that. And so yes, that checks out. That is why God has raised him up. That is what he's supposed to be doing. And so Joseph is called now to be the Imago Dei, to sit on the throne of an earthly king, but to reflect the image of God in this world, of Yahweh, um, and to take care of the hungry, to feed the, the needy and the poor, to help them survive, bring salvation in, in more ways than just one. So, um, Joseph is, again, he's there to do the actions of the Imago Dei. So what does Joseph do? He knows now why he's why he's been raised to his position and what he's doing here. So let's look at some of these passage, passages and determine whether or not he has succeeded and correctly used the position that he has been given and the Imago Dei that he has been uh, um, designed with, to hold. Okay, so let's read the next passage. Uh, chapter 47, verse 13 through 14. There was no food 
in the whole region because the famine was so severe. So I fast-forwarded past the whole abundance and they stored all the crops and everything. And now the famine is starting. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. And Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. So people start, if you read, it goes into great detail. People start coming to Egypt to, to get grain and they bring their money, they bring all that they have, and they buy all the grain that they can, they can get and they, and so that they can survive. And the next year, um, uh, we have, oh, by the way, I, I want to expand upon this a little bit. All you had in the ancient world was your money, the little bit that you had on your person, sometimes buried in your house, dirt floors. Um, your money, the clothes on your back, which was usually two articles of clothing. You have an undergarment and then you have a, uh, a coat over that, sort of a, an outer garment, and that's all you had. Um, and that wore out, you would buy another one. Um, and they had livestock and land. These are, the, these are the, your possessions that you had. So Joseph takes the first one. He takes all the money and puts it in the storehouses of Pharaoh, and he gives them their grain. So we come to the next passage, and it says this. Um, they run out of money. They come back, and they say, we don't have any money. He says, then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, and their goats, and their cattle, and their donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all of their livestock. So now Joseph has not just all of the money. He now has all of the livestock because they've run out of of money. So now he owns two of the four things that these people even have. Um... And so let's go to see what happens next because another year goes by and they come back and they say, we don't have any food. I mean, we don't have any food, we don't have any money, and we don't have any livestock. Um, And so they come to him and it says this in verse 18 through 21. It says, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food. And we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because of the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced, Joseph reduced the people to servitude. Other translations will say slavery, because that's what it is. Joseph reduced the people to slavery from one end of Egypt to the other. So Joseph takes all their money. He takes all their livestock. He takes their land. And he sells them all into bondage. And now Joseph, for Pharaoh, owns the people. He owns everything. All of it. And he begins to give them seed. If you keep reading, he begins to give them seed so that they can plant on Pharaoh's new land, the land that used to be theirs, and so that they can continue to survive And he levies a heavy tax upon them so that even the things that they grow that used to be theirs now go to Pharaoh. Um, So now Joseph, this man of God, placed in charge of this earthly kingdom to reflect God in this world, to reflect Yahweh, has succeeded in enslaving hundreds of thousands of people by taking advantage of their poverty. This is what has happened. A lot of people don't see this. They read right on by and they don't ask questions about, is this really what God wants? Or did Joseph do his own thing here in the end? Joseph is a leader. But the question is you read passages like this, and you should read this regularly and ask this question regularly, is Joseph an example of godly leadership? 
That is the question. Um, Because what does godly leadership look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. Anything that is godly looks exactly like Jesus. Because Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, according to all all kinds of passages in the New Testament, is the full expression of who God is. And so everything that you used to think God was like, you adjust and change in light of Jesus. And when you see Jesus, that is what God looks like. Um, From Sunday school all the way up until like Bible college courses I took, like from the beginning of my childhood to, to, to my college days, I had professors and stuff, um, in my early 20s, um, that would use Joseph as, as a godly example of how Christians, not just Joseph, all kinds of leaders in the Old Testament, as godly examples of what we should be, what we should be striving for. And sure, there were certainly parts of Joseph's life that were godly. He, had, he was led by the Spirit, obviously. He had this ability to, to, to listen to God, to, spend, to, to really be obedient, and he... Um, was able to conquer his flesh many times. But he wasn't a perfect example of leadership. He wasn't a perfect example of godliness. Joseph's grasp of, God, of God's grace and justice in the world was certainly lacking. And as we watch Jesus gather the hungry and feed them with miraculous food that he has, you can't help but think of Joseph, who has been put in the same position. All the people are coming to him, and he's over them, and he has miraculous food that he has received, and he is to give it to them. He is to help them survive. But unlike Jesus, he uses this situation to gather everything that they have from impoverished, dying people and enrich himself and his own wealth. Now, I know that, like, there's no examples of this in the world today. You can't look around and see a lot of people in desperate need and then a few really powerful people gathering up all the wealth from the people who were struggling to survive. I know that's like unfathomable today. But it happened. And it is not new. And it goes all the way back to the ancient world. It is a constant temptation when people come to you with needs to get something in exchange. Instead of being Christ-like and giving sacrificially and allowing yourself to be broken and poured out so that they may find salvation. Joseph's grasp of God's justice in the world was absolutely lacking. Um, Whether or not they had their own ability to feed themselves, Jesus didn't care. When you see all those people gathered during the five loaves and two fishes incident, some of them likely had food, maybe. There's no question. He's not asking any of them. They're just providing. And it turns out they have leftover when they're done. Like, There's this miraculous thing that God is doing. And when you come into power, you will oftentimes have to make a choice between whose image you will have to conform to. And I see Christians all the time arising to powerful places and compromising that image of God, the Imago Dei in them, for the Imago Congressman, Congresswoman. The the image of the powerful in this world. And you see this, and you see Christians all the time trading Christ-likeness for powerfulness, like whatever that image is, this air of authority that they put off in this way that they live their lives. And you see them begin to dabble in things that they ought not dabble in. And it leads to bad places because power, once you get it, is really hard to hold on to and it's really hard to use it actually for good. And so... 
I don't think it can be really argued very well that Joseph was a particularly godly leader in the end. I think he was used by God to bring salvation to all kinds of people. But I think he is a, an example to us of how power can go wrong. And there's other questions too. Um, what about the business practices? Is Joseph an example of godly business practices? I've heard this a lot too. Um, I remember sitting in class and somebody talking about economics and this and that and bringing out biblical examples. And for some reason, they always go to the Old Testament. And they use examples like Joseph and say because he had wisdom, he was not only able to save everyone, but he was, he was blessed with great wealth as well. And I, I hear... It's, it's hard not to like name names. But I hear people today like on, on the radio and on television to say, that say, like, you know, it, if you serve people, oftentimes God will reward you with great wealth. That's a nice thought. That is not scriptural. That is not in the Bible anywhere. And a lot of people that served God with everything that they had and lived absolutely sacrificial lives, things went very, very bad for them. And they ended up executed in the most torturous, painful ways. There is no promise that if you serve God well, you will end up with any kind of opulence at all. Oftentimes the promise is you will struggle, but you will find joy and happiness and fulfillment as you, as you bring those around you to flourish. God's goal was never for the wealth. It was always for the people to be, to, to, to be nourished and to flourish. Basically, oftentimes we encourage Christians to think of amassing wealth with the blessings of God upon your business or the great things that God wants to give you or God's ultimate goal for your, for your life and for your well-being, health and wealth and things like that. And oftentimes we even take this message and we, we export it to Africa. And we try to teach them, they're like, if you love Jesus, you will end up like America. And they're like, I will, because I'm starving to death. I'll love Jesus. And they get involved in religion for no other reason than trying to survive because these rich people have come over there to tell them this. There has to be a better way to tell the story of God. Um, God's ultimate goal for your life was never wealth and it was never success. The great blessing was the people that would gather around you. That was always the blessing. There was no other blessing. It was always about you pouring out for the people. That was the end goal and that was the purpose. It's not power, it's not political victory, it's not followers, it's not being well-known. All of that needs to be leveraged in the pursuit of the great goal, the great blessing, which is the love of God and the love of people. Being able to look in people's eyes with unconditional love for them and see that coming right back at you. This is... The goal, that all would be brought in and understand the love of Jesus, the faithfulness that God has for them. And the only way that they can receive that is through you and your sacrificial life of servitude and giving and, and leading in this way towards Christ. That was always the goal. But let's be clear, amassing wealth by taking money from desperate people cannot be said to be Christ-like. Sure, there's a huge chasm between selling bottles of water at a soccer game and selling bottles of water on the edge of a desert to people who are starving and dying of dehydration. The moral chasm between these two things is massive. Joseph was not trying to recoup his costs. He enslaved an entire nation. All through the Bible, 
Not once is God ever commanding anyone to lock anyone up. And Jesus starts his entire ministry with, I'm here to, <laughs> I'm here to bring good news to the poor and to set the prisoners free. And the reason we can confirm, like, yep, he's legit, is because all through the Bible, from beginning to end, God is letting people out of prison. Everywhere. Setting them free. Not once is God ever saying, hey, those people lock them up. No one is being brought into slavery. They're all being set free from it. Uh, Joseph had the ability to provide for both their needs and their freedom at the same time. And he didn't. If you have the ability to set people free and you do not, your decisions might have been pragmatic, but they were not Christ-like. Which brings us to a conversation about pragmatism. Because if, if the question is, how will they pay for it? And I hear this question a lot. How are they going to pay for this? If somebody desperately needs this thing and they're going to die without it, but how are they going to pay for it? The, the answer in the mind of the Christian is, well, they're not. We are. I am. That's the answer. And a big question that I want Christians to ask today is this. Does being Christ-like work? And it's a weird question. But the fact is, people are asking this all the time and they don't realize it. They ask it when they say things like, this or that command from Jesus, it's not, it, it doesn't work. What if all Christians were to do this? That wouldn't work. What do you mean work? What is it supposed to do in your eyes? To be clear, the things that Jesus taught were never intended to work. They were never intended to shore up our markets or make our nation powerful. That is never what God was up to in the world. He was never here to make your nation great and powerful. Feeding the poor, no, it doesn't work. Um, just healing the sick, it doesn't work. Giving to the needy, it, no, it, it doesn't work. But when you say something doesn't work, you are saying that it, it doesn't produce the intended outcome that you have in your mind. And that's why I'm saying it doesn't work. It will not produce the outcome that you desire because you have been discipled by the ways of the earth, the empires. And so when you talk about things working, you're talking about shoring up investments, making economies rise, shoring up borders and militaries. And no, turning the other cheek is not good for militaries. Feeding the poor is not good for markets. It was never intended to be. It was never intended to bring about any of the things that you may have in your mind. When Jesus says to love your enemies and to turn the other cheek and to, heal the, uh, to feed the poor and to heal the sick, it's not for the benefit of the economy. It's not for the benefit of the military. It's for the benefit of your enemy. It's for the benefit of the poor. It's for the benefit of the hungry. That's what it's for. Turning the other cheek is not meant to benefit you other than the fact that it can make your enemy your brother other than the fact that it eliminates your enemy altogether by looking at them as your brother. Feeding the poor may not create an economically stimulating episode that causes markets to rise, but it feeds the poor. It's Christ-like. The goal is not to work. The goal is to be Christ-like. That is what we are here for as the Imago Dei. It's for the benefit of your enemy, for the poor, for the sick. We, do not, we don't practice these things because they're pragmatic or smart, but because they are Christ-like. 
And if being Christ-like threatens societal structures, that should be a prophetic message to you about those societal structures and about the morality inherent, inherently present in them. We are Christians, little Christs. That's what that means. It used to be a mockery. We were born out of a movement of people who decided to live like Christ in the middle of the empire who did not look anything like God. And people mocked us for it. But all of those that were outcasts and thrown out, we brought in. And we built a people out of them. That's why there were so many, honestly, that's why there were so many orphans and widows in the church. It's because every time children were abandoned, the church took them in. Every time women were kicked out of their houses because men were trading them in for a new model or whatever, the church brought them in. And the church made them, trained them up to be leaders and missionaries, elders in the churches. This is what the churches did. It was never supposed to work. It was supposed to establish the kingdom of God. What Joseph does here with the power given to him will stay with them for generations. If you fast forward to Exodus chapter 1, you see something like this. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. So the slavery that Joseph created, created this entire system of slavery that eventually enslaved his own people. Because again, like I said a few weeks ago, this is what sin does. Especially in the book of Romans. This is how Paul describes it. Your little s sins create a body of sin that end up ruling over you and forcing you to sin some more. Our collective sins cause us to sin more. They form a controlling structure which pushes down upon us and we do this to ourselves. This is how sin works. Eventually, even long after God had freed them from their slavery, the Israelites, and led them into the promised land, we still see them struggling with the desire to take slaves. We still see them str- like dabbling in abusive forms of power, worldly forms of power. If you fast forward to King Solomon, look what it says about him in 1 Kings. It says, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses with which he kept in the chariots uh, Cities in the, in the chariots, he had chariot cities, um, and also with him in Jerusalem. So these were things that were expressly forbidden for the Israelites to do. They were not to amass massive armies and chariots and horses. He brings them all from Egypt, the place that enslaved them. So they are slowly, as they're going through time, trying to compete with their neighbors, and they become the thing that they were saved from. And we go even farther. Watch this. In 1 Kings chapter 9, right before that, it says, Here's the account of the forced labor labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. So the cities, the walls of Jerusalem, the temple itself was built by slaves that Solomon shipped in from other places and brutally force them to build. Israel has become everything that God saved them from. 
These people that they are abusing were once them, and they were calling out to God for help. You don't think these people are also going to call out to God for help? And you don't think God's going to hear them? God always hears the cries of the oppressed. And he always does something about it. And it would lead to exile. It would lead to them losing everything. As Christians, we compare earthly leadership with Jesus. That is how we determine whether or not someone is a good leader. Are they Christ-like? If not, they're a bad leader. And we get in their way every place where they are not Christ-like. When they do act Christ-like, we are their cheerleader. We stand up and we say, hey, this is just like our guy that we follow. And so if you're going down this path, we'll assist you on this path. But when you turn this way, we're against you. When you turn that way, we will stand in your way. We will protest in your streets. We will be against you at every turn. But if you stay on the path that Jesus has called us on, we'll look to our left and we'll see you walking with us. And we'll encourage you on the path. But make no mistake, we are not here to support you. We support Jesus. Our allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And so the Israelites with their kings within a few generations have become everything that God has saved them from. As you read the Bible, we are to look for the ways that God's people failed to look like God, to act like God, to respond like God. To hear the real voice of God instead of some tribal projection that the ancient people put upon God. And how will we know whether or not someone is godly? We look at Christ. That is how we know. Christ is a measuring stick. Christ-likeness is, again, not pragmatic. It may not benefit you. In fact, it may be the opposite. Christ-likeness may cost you an awful lot. Um, it may even get you killed. Christ-likeness. It has a long history of getting people killed. We call them martyrs. You may have noticed martyrs don't really have a place in American Christianity anymore. A martyr is a fool who refused to carry a gun. A martyr is a fool who didn't act pragmatically. A martyr is a fool who couldn't protect himself. No. A martyr is someone who stood and acted Christ-like and died for it. For refusing to bow down to any other king, have any other allegiance, and who stands there and says, whatever you have, you throw it at me. They threw it all at Jesus. And watch how that turned out. Their power is nothing. The power of the sword is nothing compared to the power of the cross. That is why we wield the cross. Christ-likeness is never meant to work. It's meant to heal. It's meant to save. It's meant to be the pursuit of God's people. It's our vocation. It's our office. And anyone, whether rich or poor, can equally accomplish this task of Christ-likeness. It is why we gather and tell the story again and again and again. And so wherever you are out there in internet land and for everybody gathered here, as you read the text, I want you to maybe highlight the ways in which God's people are Christ-like. I want you to highlight the ways in which they're not. And ask those questions. Ask important questions about those texts. May, may the picture of Christ-likeness guide your studies. May they guide you through the text until you get to the point where Jesus enters in 
and everything changes for God's people. And they will never be the same again. They will never talk about God again the same way again. They will never live the same way again. They will never interact with power the same way again or money or sex or anything. Everything will be different once Christ appears and we fully see what it looks like. And so I'm gonna close this in prayer and then I want us to uh, do a collect prayer together. We're doing collect prayers in place of communion until this whole mess is over. Um, and so why don't you stand with me and let's pray and then let's do our collect prayer together. Father, thank you for everyone gathered here. Thank you for everyone gathered online in their bedrooms, in their living rooms, in their cars, on planes, wherever they are listening and watching. Um, bless them with joy and encouragement. Let them know that they are still a part of a people, that we still exist, that we are still here with them and for them. We will continue to provide for our brothers and sisters whom they love with us. Um, we will continue to pour ourselves out for them in ways that bring salvation and healing and nourishment and wholeness. Go before us, Father, prepare the way, and teach us to follow. In your name, amen. So if you would, nice and loud, let's do the collect prayer, shall we? God of hope, who heals the broken, be present with us. Where there is mourning, bring comfort. Where there is division, bring unity. Where there is depravity, bring wholeness. Where there is deception, bring truth. May we be a people bound together in love and faith, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Grace and peace, everyone. Love you all. Miss you all out there. Um, have an incredible week. God bless you.